good to hear from you. How are things? Great. They're wonderful. How about sorry you? About slight, sorry about the slight technical issues. No worries. No worries. It happens. It's a, it's a common theme here. So welcome <laughs> to the club. <laughs> Thanks very much. So you've been very busy on your book tour. You've been doing so many different shows. I've been watching you on all sorts of podcasts and programs. Mm-hmm. Have you been able yes. to catch your breath? I have. Uh, I'm not particularly keen to catch a breath, but I can do it when I need to. Yes. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I've been very busy, but that's as it should be when you have a new book out. And hopefully, you know, best thing that can happen for an author is that you have readers. And uh, so, yeah, in order to get readers, you have to be busy. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you've moved to the U.S. now, is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. Mm. Um, are have you moved? Have you said? Um, I can't remember, but I think you said it in some program that you moved to New York. Is it because you write for the Post, or that's are you correct? Kind of, yes. Yeah. Okay. And I'm just curious, what motivated uh, move to New York specifically? Uh, several things. One is I'm very long on America and long on New York in particular, mm. um, and a lot of people are not. But I think that uh, it's always going to be, despite whatever troubles it's going through, and it's going through some at the moment, uh, it's always going to be one of the great centers of the world. Uh, it's a huge hub still for business, for media, much more. Um, the real thing that motivated it uh, has been, and I, I still go back and forth, obviously, in travel, uh, but the real motivation is that uh, for the issues I'm writing about at the moment, um, America is the hub. You might, you might say it's a hub of the bad ideas. Uh, <laughs> and I think that's quite important because if you're a writer like me, interested in writing about the issues of your time, uh, you, you know, you're best at the center of the action. Mm. And there, there's a lot of interesting and important things. There are a lot of interesting and important things going on in the UK, but the, the, the US is the, the hub, the producer, the net exporter of, many of the bad ideas that I've spent recent years writing about. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And the same is true here for Canada. I'm based here in Vancouver and, Absolutely. Uh, and yeah, it's the, you know, the ideas they, they're, they're born and they're, they, they germinate uh, in the United States, but then they're That's correct. across the border. So what, what you're seeing in New York or many of these big liberal cities you're, you're seeing right here in Vancouver and across Canada and, and the UK and other parts of Europe. That's but right. Before we uh, unpack some of that, and we're going to talk a lot about your your personal life, and maybe we'll dig a bit more into your move to the United States. But I, I just want to first of all say that I'm a huge fan of yours. I've been watching you since I was in high school. Probably I was 17 when I first came across mm. your work. I'm 21 now, and so you've you know I've been very closely reading your work well before anybody knew who I was. <laughs> so mm. it's, it's been wonderful to, you know, closely follow you and read your work and have that be a big kind of guiding force in my own journalistic career. And you, know, you and I both contribute for the, the same papers and you're, you're a regular columnist there, but I, I occasionally contribute to the New York post. Mm. And that is, that is kind of where I um, came on everybody's radar was a few uh, big essays that were published there. And uh, so no, I, re- I read them, and I greatly admired what you had to say in them. And it's so wonderful that you know fresh voices like yours are coming up uh, and and being heard. You know, it's the same thing. I mean, I think that 
people people can when they walk against some of the currents of the time have a disproportionate impact uh and you've certainly had that mm yeah yeah i appreciate that i think it was the uh, cancel culture piece i wrote last year in october that mm. made put me on your radar you you, you might right. not, you might not remember but yeah I, i think that was it that's when we connected over on twitter and uh our our mutual friend uh matthew who i It, it, it was a private interaction we had, and I, and I won't go into all, all of it. But uh, he is now a mutual uh, connection, and he, you know, he's your agent, of course. And yes, he and I have talked a few times, thanks to you. Um, yeah, good, and, uh, good. He's, I'm he's always been... delighted to be able to introduce people to other people who can help them out in their careers, because I know that in my own career, uh, it's been very important that you know you make a connection with somebody, and they connect you with somebody else, and before you know it, hopefully you're up and away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Matthew, he, you know, we've talked a couple of times and he's been uh, uh, prompting me to, to start writing a book proposal. And I've sort of been, uh, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to wait more on that, wait for maybe a year or two more. But he, but he's, he's a wonderful person. And I'm sure when the time is right for me to write something, I'll, I'll reach out to him and, and maybe we'll have Good. a conversation too. And so anyway, I, I appreciate that connection. No, I'm delighted with it. I delighted that, and I look forward to a book whenever you feel like you're ready to write one. I never, I never want to urge people to write books unnecessarily because so many books always are coming out. But uh, whenever you feel like you've got one to do, you should, you should uh, put the time aside and do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and on that point, I think the um, when I first talked to Matthew, and I've talked to a few other literary agents who've who re- reached out to me as well and have asked me to write a book. And this is kind of a broader point that I think. Um, is important to me. And when I first talked to Matthew and I first talked to a number of these agents, I was very excited about writing a book and be, being a very creative person. I'm always brimming with so many different ideas. Mm. And I had a couple of really interesting book ideas and um, it, it's kind of a long story, but it, it through a lot of spiritual and religious experiences and some personal things that occurred in my life, I, kind of really humbled myself and realized that I don't know as much as I would like to know to write a book. And I think, mm. you know, so many people in media and journalism, they have an opinion on absolutely everything. Yes, and that's great, this, great advice of the age. There, yeah, and there's so much arrogance of, you know, so, you know, we went from, you know, BLM to being a COVID expert to knowing about all the intricacies of what's happening in Afghanistan and Ukraine, that's Russia. Right. These are very complicated things. And yes. I'm, and you know, with the with the rise that I've had personally as a young writer, th- th- there was a little bit of an air. Er- there was a little bit of an arrogance that that I think is not on the extent of many people writing for these big magazines who are many years older than I am. But even for myself, it was like I, I should be very careful in what I say, and I am very careful in what I say. Mm. Oftentimes, people ask me like, "Oh, what do you think about climate change?" And I, mm. you know, sometimes say like. You know, I don't really have a strong opinion about this, and that's okay. Mm. I, I have a yes. life. I'm not a permanent opinionator, an opinion-making machine. And unfortunately, so many people in our media class are exactly that. They, well, that's true. Yeah. But, you know, you know you, 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 you've got to balance these instincts. Your, your instinct is completely uh, right. Never to write about something you don't know about. Never to speak about something you don't know about. And unfortunately, not 
not everyone in our era uh, follows these, uh, this piece of advice, as you point out. But I would add one other thing, which is you do need a certain arrogance, and I might even say youthfulness sometimes, to throw yourself into the, the world. Um, I mean, if you wait endlessly, you might wait always. And, uh, you know, it, it, a, a lot of people, you know, they, they, I think this is about my own career, you know, you think, oh, my God, how did I dare to, you know, to write about that or speak about that at that stage. And you're sort of always going to be horrified looking back that you knew lift, uh, you know, less than you do now. Um, but, but the, 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 you know, part of the point of, of you from starting off is that you do throw yourself into situations which, for instance, you don't know are as dangerous as, as, as they are. I mean, um, you know, that's what children do. And, and adults starting off do something similar, I think, particularly in intellectual terrain, quite often throw themselves into things. They didn't realize how how tricky they were, but that's that's part of the point. Is um, if you knew everything, maybe you'd do nothing, you know. Uh, uh, but I do think that a very important point, and I've I've often you know, given passed on this piece of advice. Is I think a very important point for young writers starting off is is not to be a generalist. You know, what you describe as the the sort of you know expert in mm. Afghanistan withdrawals and also in COVID and also in ivermectin and also in in. Uh, I know Ukraine and everything else. That 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 it's, it's very tempting for some people, but actually the best thing to do, particularly when you're starting out, is to be an expert in one thing or to become expert in one thing, and then before you know it, people um, you know come to you for that thing, and uh, then you get another thing, and then people come to you for that as well, and before you know it, you have a career. Um, a lot of people don't follow that advice. They 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 become generalists and. That's not that helpful uh, as a writer, uh, certainly when you're starting out. Much better to be identified with one thing, in a way, however small, uh, than to try to spread yourself too thin and uh, have opinions on absolutely everything. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great advice. And I have been following that early on in my work, um, similar to Coleman Hughes in many ways, who mm. you're much more familiar with. He's, he's a, he's been a great role model for me. Um, oh, right, good. right, right. When I was, uh, I think about to graduate high school, he was, you know, he reached all of this sudden success with, uh, mm-hmm. test testimony in Congress, the, the, the wonderful essays in Colette magazine. And mm-hmm. it was very, very much, um, kind of mirroring what he was doing, but in my own kind of uh, way. And, and and I started mm. particularly with the uh, the racial identity politics, and particularly the the niche of um, th- this this people of color umbrella that's been mm. given, and and often in progressive discourse, the complexity of that umbrella is rarely acknowledged. And I was sort of coming in of like, hey, I'm, you know, I have this Indian background, and yeah, I've experienced some racism, but you know, it's really unfair and overly simplistic and kind of discriminatory to kind of lump me into people of color and mm. into this uh, crude binary of uh, white oppressors and marginalized uh, victims of color. And so yeah. that, that, that's kind of how I started during the BLM um, mm. in 2020. And that's kind of what put me on a lot of people's radars. And since then I've been writing a lot about crime and However, I, I have greatly evolved um, over the past several months and writing less about those things and writing more about uh, vaccine mandates and issues of civil liberties, personal mm. bodily autonomy. Well, it's and, a huge uh, issue in Canada, yeah. that. I mean, obviously, Canada has been 
more authoritarian than almost any other country in the world in what it has asked uh, of from its citizens. Mm. Yeah, and and I think this is this might be a way to to start this conversation and, and to ask you some questions that I wanted to um, of over the past uh, couple of months. Um, really, since January, there's been a bit of a shift in my life, and I, I won't go too on uh, too detailed into this. And pe- people who know my work know about this um, that I've been doing a lot of uh, psychedelic therapy. Um, I don't know hmm. if you know much about that, Douglas. <laughs> a bit, yes. About yeah, about the the power of um, psychedelic substances when done in a very controlled therapeutic context. What have you to, been doing? I've done MDMA therapy, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm looking to get into the psilocybin mushrooms soon as well. But but so far, I've only done MDMA therapy, which is a, a really powerful tool for uncovering past trauma mm. and um, accessing parts of your unconscious mind, things that you really buried and confronting them and learning from them and it's been a really beautiful experience and i've i've written about this on my um uh, on my substack and i'm writing about my second experience and then the really powerful journeys that you take on with um, a guide that's with you um hopefully um i, I don't recommend mm. people to recreationally experiment with these things but uh, th- through those experiences i've um t- taken a, a a big break from politics and from writing about uh, media and the culture wars, because I, I kind of, for, for a number of reasons, realized that um, the mo- the motivation behind a lot of my writing was kind of unhealthy or a little bit toxic. There was a bit of this incentive that I was kind of playing with of uh, trying to gain more and more attention and gain a kind of validation from mm. external means rather than spiritual or personal means. And I don't know how much mm-hmm. that, that speaks to you, Douglas. Um, but, but and, and I do want to talk about spirituality because that, that's um, been very important to me over the past few months. But uh, maybe first, um, since we've talked a little bit about me and, you know, me starting very young, you know, you also started very young. Is that correct? And you, you published your yes. first book at uh, what age was it? I was 20. You were 20. Okay. Yeah. So you, so if, if people say that I'm a young prodigy, then I'm, I'm nothing compared to you. You published well, your first book you at one of the greatest pleasures, I, maybe one of the only pleasures I have in getting old is that I'm not described as a prodigy anymore. Uh, I, I was very happy to uh, shed that particular label. Um, but yes, I, published, I wrote my first book when I was 18 and it came out when I was 20 in my second year at university. And uh, so, yes, I've been a writer for about a quarter of a century now, rather terrifyingly. Mm. <laughs> nice. And... Um... Uh, when you were in school, I assume you were very intelligent, very good at writing. You were into the humanities. Um, does that kind of describe who you were? A very intelligent student, well, academic student? I think I was sometimes lazy, like we all are. Sometimes hardworking. Um, I mean, you can't only be lazy, obviously, otherwise you never get anything done. Uh, but I, I was certainly, I could be lazy around the edges. I, I was... Um, always pretty clear that if, if there was something I wanted to do, I would do it and work hard at it. And of course, if there was something I didn't want to do, I wouldn't. And that's actually not a great trait. Um, and uh, it's much better to, to early on be, you know, realize that there are some things you don't want to do, but you've got to work at them anyway. Uh, but I was a little bit, uh, you know, directional. Uh, and I sort of knew what I wanted to do. And, um, and writing became that thing 
very clearly at some point in my maybe mid-teens, I suppose. Mm. And uh, so, so growing up, were you religious at all? Were, were your parents religious? Yes, I was brought up in a, in a religious family, uh, Church of England, which I know some people think means you're not religious, but uh, in our case meant we were uh, church every Sunday. Um, uh, and yes, I mean, religion was a very important part of life. Uh, I rather took it for granted, like, uh, like um, fish do with water. Um, and obviously I've changed and evolved my views on religion uh, as I've gone out into the world and that's not uncommon. Um, and it's something which I think about a lot and I suppose my own um, journey now is at a stage where I would say that I, I like to remain in dialogue with religion even though I can't, uh, I can't feel it. Uh, not quite true to say I can't feel it, but I can't think it probably more accurate. Mm, interesting. I, I do want to dig into that. But in, in childhood, you were, you, so you were religious, you were going to church, but you mm -hmm. didn't really have a sincere or devoted kind of relationship. Oh, no, I did completely, completely okay. devoted. Oh, into my, uh, probably into my mid, mid to late 20s, that was the case, yes. Mm. Yes. And which which, de which denomination, by the way, of Christianity? So the Church of England, Anglican Church, uh, Anglican, which I suppose okay. in, in, in American terms would be Episcopalianism. Um, Got it. I, I actually went to a Catholic school for some time, which inoculated me to, to Catholicism. Uh, but but yes, and then, I mean, you know, as an adult, I was still a practicing Christian and a believer. I wasn't faking it. Mm. And so the, then, then what happened? Sounds like a broad question, but, but what, what, what um, kind of changed for you? And you well, know? I wrote a, I wrote a piece in the late two thousands saying that Muhammad had made me an atheist uh, because it was actually partly my study of Islam that um, once I worked out how Islam worked, uh, um, I realized well this same thing could be said of all religions, and uh, I suppose I you know partly went into atheism at first, agnosticism later, through that route. Uh, there were also, and I think this is common with all religious people, and I, I sometimes ask religious friends this privately, you know, um, there are things that you put away because you fear what will happen if you contend with them. And the religious very often have that. Uh, and I knew that there were certain things that I didn't want to read because if I did, I might fall into non-belief. And that eventually, as I say, at one point in my 20s, I couldn't put that off. Uh, and, uh, you know, certain issues, I mean, I'd have said it was the, the, the fallout from 19th century biblical criticism and more, uh, finally, you know, worked its way into me as well. And, um, uh, and, and made me a doubter, a non-believer, and then a doubter. Uh, but I have a complex relationship with religion because I do recognize its efficacy. I don't have the religion that it, I don't have the belief that religion is for other people. Some people occasionally accuse me of that because I, I believe in belief. Um, and I don't think that the purely materialistic or purely scientific worldview is, is adequate uh, to the task at hand. Uh, so I, I generally say, you know, I, I believe in engaging with religion and being 
open to the conversation. Um, but I don't, I don't take the hardline atheist view that I probably inevitably did for a time after becoming a non-believer uh, because I didn't find it satisfactory. Mm. And this is another topic I wanted to get into, and I, I'm not sure if this weaves into the religion discussion, but, you, you know, you are a gay man. Um, did that play a role in you becoming a non-believer? Was the... None whatsoever. None whatsoever. No. Okay. No. I never had a problem with that. I never had when I was, uh, I mean, after a very short amount of time, I suppose, when I was growing up, I was worried about it as a moral question. And then I, I read and, you know, and read about that specific issue and satisfied myself that uh, even if that was an issue, there were much bigger ones and that it was um, not the worst, you know, not the worst thing to be by a long way. And, uh, and I, I mean, basically, there were a few people, including W.H. Jordan and others, who had been through similar quandaries and who helped me out through them. Mm. Uh, so, so it wasn't an issue. I certainly never lapsed into unbelief because of mm. the, the tiny number of verses in the Bible relating to homosexuality. And I, 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 don't, I would never find that a very satisfactory thing to do anyway. I don't think that people should uh, select their religious or other beliefs simply in order to be comfortable themselves. I think it's a, a type of arrogance to, uh, to do that. Mm. No. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm in a very Christian-dominated area myself, and so I'm frequently in dialogue with many Christian friends, pastors, priests, and whatnot, and I have great appreciation for these things. And there's definitely a uh, more judgmental, perhaps kind of uh, anti-Christian kind of segment within Christianity that is um, harshly judgmental towards homosexuality in particular and sort of makes that to be a central issue. And yes, it's, it's, it's slightly strange that because, I mean, it, I, I, th I don't think that's very common. I mean, maybe yes. the bits of America I travel to, it's, it's yeah. uh, changed. But if, I mean, every, every church in New York has a bloody rainbow flag outside it at the moment. I mean, <laughs> they're positively desperate. Yeah. They're, they're, they're more gay than they are Christian, some of these churches. <laughs> so, I mean, they, um, it's, you know, it's, it, it, I think quite often people are uh, tilting at windmills that are, that are passed. Uh, and in the case of the churches and homosexuality, it's true there are some denominations that bang on about it. I, I always thought that was ridiculous, and partly because I um, I could see the ludicrousness of obsessing about such a relatively unimportant thing. Um, I mean, you know, for instance, remarriage among heterosexuals, much bigger thing in the question of the church, and I saw... Catholics and others finding ways around that. So I thought, well, these things clearly aren't insuperable uh, as as problems. And and I was I was never particularly impressed by you know people who railed against the sins of homosexuality whilst introducing you to their fourth wife. <laughs> exactly. Well, well said. But, but but at the same time, like I, I agree, the, the currents are changing with respect to that. But at the, at the same time, I still see a bit of a visceral, judgmental attitude towards gays. Yes, you it's do get it sometimes. You, I, I mean, I, I you occasionally encounter it on the American right, 
uh, you encounter on the American left as well, who believe that if you're gay, you should be a Democrat, as if it's in the water. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, but 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 on the right, there are some people. Yes, I mean some people have written attacks on me uh, for gaying up the uh, right. I, I don't find it a, um, a particularly devastating critique or anything because um, I think the people in question are generally bad faith actors. And um, in any case, why would I care? You know, I mean, I think one of the very important things once you put your um, uh, once you put your views out there is that you have to have an attitude towards that. I mean, you you've presumably learned how to do that. Um, some people obsess endlessly about what other people think about them, uh, and I'm very fortunate in really not caring. And you know, my own opinion is enough for me. I don't seek uh, for everyone else in the world to agree with me, and nor do I seek you know validation of um, of strangers or people I don't respect. So, you know, I don't find that when somebody does say you know something unpleasant about me, that I don't find it really has any effect at all. Mm. So, I, I mean, when you were growing up, um, were there any issues at all, like with parents or with other religious folks around you um, with regards to being gay? Were there any prominent issues or was it not a big deal? For well, you? I wouldn't I wouldn't talk about my personal life very much um, okay. uh, for, for various reasons, which I put out there before, which is that I believe that people have to be very careful in modern era of how much they say about those around them. Uh, right. My late friend Christopher Hitchens used to say, "We, we don't have copyright over other people's lives." Um, and I also think, by the way, and this is something that you and members of your generation need to think about very carefully. You have to be very careful about putting too much out there. And what I mean by that is that, for mm. instance, um, you know, uh, you you can't you can't put everything out there in the public realm because. There are also things you need for yourself and which are not other people's business. And I think that the, uh, I think oversharing mm. is, is a, is a mistake. Uh, um, I, I think that, or to put it another way, and this is maybe a way which is, is helpful as I say to younger people listening, never put anything out there that you don't want to be used back at you. Um, because mm. that is, that is what happens. Uh, if you post a photo of yourself and you're looking only for people to say, gosh, you look great. Well, yeah, it will be people to say, God, you look like a pile of shit. And you've got to accept that that's because you put the photo out there and you're going to get negatives and positives. And that's the same with opinions. And that's the same about talking about yourself, your private life in public. You, there will be people who will be very pleased and very pleased to share common experiences and much more. But there will be other people who think, oh, good, I know something about that person now or the people around them that I can use against them. So I think people have to be very careful about that. And I've mm. certainly been very careful about that in my life uh, and career um, mm. and, and, and much, much uh, advise it. Yes. Yeah. No, that, that's definitely well taken. And as you, Douglas, you and I have talked before this conversation and with your agent as well, that I, I wanted to know about your, your personal life, certain things. Um, with respect to religion, spirituality, growing up as a gay man. And, and w when we briefly corresponded on Twitter, you said you, you're fine to talk about absolutely anything. Mm. You know, th th that, that being said, if, if we're getting into any territory that, you know, you don't want to talk about. Um, oh, don't you worry. I, I would let you know. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. 
Yeah, I just, just want to make sure we're both comfortable. Um, so, and I guess the, 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 you know, maybe a different way of asking the question that I did earlier um, or something that might uh, prompt any reflection on your part might be like when you uh, came out as a gay man, was that a big moment for you in your life or were there any complexities surrounding that um, event or series um, of events? Yes, there were, and they are always much less important in the rearview mirror than they were at the time. Mm. Uh, at the time, as for everybody, that's a matter of, you know, significance. And the further away you go from the event, it uh, becomes much less significant. Mm. Um, I suppose that in my case, it was also tied up with my first sort of public um, appearance as a writer. And I was very... I was nervous about those that being um, too much part of the story. I didn't want to be looked at as a gay writer, and I mm. don't think I ever have been. But I was, I was, I was worried about that. I was worried about that aspect of my life being used to look at me uh, because I didn't think it was a very important thing in my life, and I was always worried at the beginning of my career that people would 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 somehow pigeonhole me. Uh, but then this is a long time ago now. I mean, in the 1990s, mm. things were were slightly different. There were not very many famous gay people. Uh, I mean, there were some, of course, but the, the range of role models and of heroes and so on was much smaller than it is now. I mean, for instance, uh, there was no frontline politician who was gay. Uh, there were there were people in the art in the entertainment industry and in the arts, of course. But I, I, and I often have this conversation with younger friends about the fact that, you know, in a very short space of time, that's changed and it's changed for the good, you know, that, uh, because of course, one of the things that happens, I'm sure you've seen this in your life as well, is that you tend to orient the, the, the direction you put, you put your life in, depending on whether or not other people have helped to lay that track before, or walk that track before relatively few people actually have the cojones to walk and create an entirely new track. Thank God some people do. But most people, they eye up where people who they feel are like them have managed to walk before, and they walk down that track. And uh, I think that was certainly the case in the past with a lot of gay people. Uh, there were certain professions that were more open to them than others. Uh, I think that's the same with other groups, actually. It has been the same with certain ethnic groups, you know. Nobody like me does this, therefore I can't do that, you know. And uh, I never wanted to be limited like that uh, and was probably much more rebarbative and uh, a bit sharp-edged about that than I am now. Mm. Right, right. And... Um... Again, what I was uh, saying earlier, maybe I'll, I'll put a finer point on it, about um, while institutionally and culturally it's very difficult to be kind of anti-gay super explicitly, um, even in religious settings, more, more and more, it's, it's very, very difficult to do that. If you do that, you'll be suffocated and culturally executed for doing that. <laughs> but but um, th there's, of course, because, you know, religion is still here, there's still, um, I, I see this all the time, and with many close, you know, Christian friends too about this, um, perhaps maybe less of the sophisticated ones, uh, you know, th their attitudes towards gays and 
you know, one friend in mind, um, or maybe a former friend from several months ago, um, I was just asking him like, okay, you know, he's a very liberal person. And I said, you know, if you had a son who was gay, um, and he's a devout Christian, by the way, devout Protestant Christian. And I said, if you had a son who was gay, you know, you know, how would you go about doing that? I was just interested in what his approach would be. And he would say, yeah, I would really put in my full efforts to try and kind of talk him out of it and, you know, <laughs> t tell him why this is so, you know, wrong or, you know, morally reprehensible. And, and, you know, and but he was still like, you know, if, if he didn't um, move at all in his position, then, of course, I would not hate him. I would still love him, but I would mm. still want him to not be in a gay uh, relationship. Mm. Um, and so one one way of framing a question to you that might be interesting is like if, if there are people like that in that situation and and you having been in that situation i, I don't know how um l like you said you didn't want to comment to particularly on your your parents and others around you but ha having been in you know in a situation that i'm sure had some complexity and and you know some sort of clashes i'm sure especially given that you um, you know, this was a, a an older time for sure, but but even now, this is still um, an issue that many you know religious uh, children, teenagers, young adults face. So yes. what, what what is some advice you might give to a young gay man? Say let's let's say in a Christian family, and his parents are very devoutly Christian. Is there some sort of advice you would have about forming their identity um, with respect to religion and with respect to their um, future? Well, I would say that you should go on the presumption that things will change, and they will. People quite often have views in the abstract which change in the real. Uh, and what I mean by that is that they, for instance, like your friend, there is something they believe would be the case if a circumstance was to arise, which is not the case when the circumstance arises. This, is, this used to be the case in the past with things like intermarriage, racial intermarriage. Um, relatively few people i mean there were lots of people in the past indeed you know opinion rate opinions on intermarriage have changed very swiftly in the last few generations thank goodness but you know there were many people who believed for instance if their child married somebody of a different ethnic background they would abandon them or not want to speak to them or not want to speak to the spouse and many people had strong views on that sort of thing and then what happened well the reality comes along and the question becomes do I really want to cut myself off from my child? Do I want to cut myself off from my grandchildren? And most of the time the answer is no. Some people, of course, are very, very uh, bloody-minded, let's say. And they would stick to the, what they believe is a principle. Um, but reality changes people's attitudes on this. And all of the opinion data shows that you know, the single biggest shift, the th single biggest cause of shift in attitudes toward gays uh, is, and it's been proved by all the opinion polls, is if you know somebody's gay. Um, and I'd say that is the same on almost every issue of what we call social progress. Um, uh, you know, you can't actually. Um, sustain racist views or homophobic views or sexist views or you know, any of these things if there is somebody close to you you love you know however complex that is and but you love or 
my own who is that thing that in the abstract you think you don't like um i mean i wrote a bit about this a bit in my last book in the madness of crowds uh and in uh you know i did a gay trans race and women and uh wonderful subject, book by the way wonderful book very kind of you say so um and the madness of crowds uh i did address this and i said look there is some I mean, I don't believe that homophobia, for instance, is solely solely comes from religion. I think it's a significant uh, uh, catalyst for it, but it's not the only cause. And I speculate in the man's of crowds about what other causes there are, and there are in the same reason, the same way that, for instance, uh, dislike of women by some men is not actually a religious issue. For some, it is the cause of unpleasant life experiences that have embittered them and made them blame an entire sex. Uh, you know, it's not it's not from a principle. Um, and some people have that. I mean, I have a friend who is, as he describes himself, mildly homophobic because he had a bad experience with somebody who was gay when he was growing up and just feels a slight dislike. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with, with that or admitting it. I, I think it's it's the result of an unpleasant experience. And, uh, you know, like some men, for instance, who've gone through particularly nasty divorces or, you know, and that sort of thing and become bitter about all women because, you know, they were once taken to the cleaners by one. These are not things that you can eradicate in the species. <laughs> one of the funny things about, you know, you can tell you're talking with somebody ignorant is when they say things like, that's why we've got to stamp out homophobia forever, or that's why we've got to stamp out sexism forever, or racism forever. And I think, yeah, you know, there are some things you'll never be able to stamp out entirely. You can mute them, you can diminish them for sure. But if you think you can get rid of these things completely, I mean, you're, uh, you're living in fantasy. Mm. Yeah. I, I think that's absolutely right. And to, I guess, close the loop on this part of the conversation, the, I, I will say the, the, the views on the, the Christian view on homosexuality was what initially pushed me away from Christianity, especially, and maybe made me sort of uh, antagonistic towards hmm. it in some ways. And I've had many discussions, debates about it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, like I just don't understand why that has to be a sin what the reason well, is i mean the answer is of course is it uh, i mean it's all about what people weight things on i mean as you know the passage in leviticus that says that man shall not lie with man it also says that you should not wear any fabrics or any garments made of mixed fabric yes yeah but yet you yeah, know yeah. our society and, and and i mean our society doesn't obsess about whether or not, you know, people are walking down the street wearing things that are 80% cotton and 20% cashmere. Right. Or, or as one uh, other, as one other absurd example, like w women who are menstruating, um, yes. are not allowed to I mean, church services or stay away from, from other people. I mean, yeah. yeah in, there's in, a lot in of the, in the book of common prayer, which I was brought up with, which is the main prayer book for the Anglican faith or was at any rate, and it's filled with beautiful language and much more, uh, you know, there is a, there is a, a section still in the Book of Common Prayer. Nobody uses it now and didn't when I was growing up, but for the churching of women, which is the, basically the readmission of women into the church after um, uh, after childbirth, um, you know, and it's to do with the 
uh, you know, having done the wrong of, of, of sex and, and much more. So that was, you know, these, these things were quite common till quite recently. Um, and I mean, I take it as gr for granted, I'm afraid, that people who obsess about the sexuality of other people, or the sex lives of other people, have something going on badly wrong themselves. I've never known a case where that isn't the case. I've never encountered somebody who obsesses about other people's sex lives who doesn't have some problem somewhere themselves. And it is such a, such a completely useful rule of thumb that I remain completely uh, content when I see somebody railing against homosexuality or extramarital sex or anything else, because I just know that they've got a computer whose hard drive you wouldn't want to see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, well said. And, and and recently, I should say for people listening, I mean, uh, over the past year, I've grown much more appreciative of Christianity and and um, have been closely reading and understanding what exactly it is and attending church right. with a number of friends. And I and I think there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, especially absolutely under understanding the 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 principles and the values that uh, Jesus espoused. Um, even if you, even if you don't want to talk about the resurrection and other things, the you know the very values that he had of, of unconditional love, charity, altruism, selflessness, self transcendence, those things are are beautiful, and, and yes. there's so, so much to learn. You can spend a lifetime trying to learn yes. what, what Jesus was was getting at and the principles that he espoused, and and I, and yes. I, and I think there's great value in doing that. This is one of the saddest things, of course, of anyone who presents Christianity as a sort of sex obsessed thing is yeah. they, it's like m missing out on the main points. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it's a terrible thing. Um, it would be like somebody saying, I'm not going to deal with the Greek philosophers because of one attitude they held. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to read Aristotle because of his views on slavery, you know, well, they're, they're, right. you know, good for you. Well done. That's made your life better. Um, uh, I, I do think that one of the things that is important for Christians and non-Christians to realize about Christianity is there is one thing in particular that is completely revolutionary in it. Um, I think much of uh, Christian ethic can be got from uh, ancient Greece. Uh, parts of it can mm. be got from the Platonists and elsewhere. There's one thing in particular which you can't get anywhere else and which changes the world, and that is the... Um, the imploring of people to love their enemies. It, and it's such a completely counterintuitive revolutionary suggestion, which is beyond entire societies to be capable of doing, but it's not beyond a person. Um, and whenever you actually see somebody doing that thing, it changes the world. Um, and I think that that is, for me, is, is the most extraordinary thing in Christianity to contend with. It's, um, yeah, it's completely revolutionary. Mm. Mm. Okay. Um, I, so now I, I think we should talk more about uh, spirituality because I'm very curious about your life and how that um, uh, pl plays a role in how you view the world. So you said you became a non-believer for a while and then you became... Mm -hmm. An agnostic mm -hmm. um and you know for me you know you're very close with with sam harris jordan peterson mm -hmm. uh, 
wonderful people who I've had the pleasure of, of speaking to before. Uh, Peterson, um, he's, he's a wonderful person and he, uh, proud to say he's a reader of mine. And then, and, and Sam, I've, I've talked to before because I, um, I'm, I'm an avid follower of his, uh, meditation teachings. And, mm. uh, for, for me, I guess maybe if, if I'll add a bit of personal context and see if, if this is something that parallels anything you've explored, but, but for me, I'm growing up in a Sikh family, by the way, uh, Sikh mm. family from India with a bit of Hindu influence. Um, I was very much against the the organized versions of that and didn't really understand the point of you know growing your hair long and wearing a turban and just just the culture didn't interest me the music the the mm. rituals I, I was a very kind of a naturally scientific questioning person and still am mm. but I, I would say in high school i started asking a lot more questions and became curious about these things and realized that living a fully atheistic life uh, is, is not a life that is well examined and coming mm. into full contact with the, the the beauty that the universe has to offer. And so I, I kind of veered into Christianity and then kind of became disaffected by it because of, of the, the, the gay stuff, actually. And, and at, at that point, I think I was still scratching the surface, um, I, I would say. You um, must have been. You couldn't yeah. have been doing any more than scratching the surface if that was what put you off. Yeah, well, it's just it, it made no sense to me still why that's still... Uh, an issue why that's still considered a sin to this day according to you know almost every christian you talk like that point was like you know if if this this text is inspired by god then you know this thing should make sense and i don't i don't see it making sense but we we don't have to go deeper into that Mm. but but so so that that was kind of part of the journey but then eventually i came to the east and it was through sam harris who kind of served as this beautiful bridge between science and spirituality Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I haven't heard you and Sam particularly engage, uh, in this topic, but, but I'm, mm. I'm curious, um, what your take on these things is, but I, I came to Sam's work and then I started meditating through his wonderful app, uh, waking up, which, um, I don't know, have you ever tried that Douglas? Um, so Sam has tried to, I, I adore Sam, of course, he's a wonderful man, great friend. Uh, he has tried to get me to meditate and, uh, I'm no good at it. And, uh. <laughs> Uh, I we tried to meditate when I was in Australia with him uh, a few years ago, and uh, my mind is too um, racing. Now I'm told that this is a sign that you should learn to meditate. Yes, yes. Uh, I've never been able to do it. I'm a um, I, I have an irritability in my character which Sam doesn't, and the irritability is massively exacerbated by all and any requests to or suggestions to meditate um <laughs> it, it it triggers my irritability uh, <laughs> to really higher and higher levels um so uh, it's it's something that i am not currently capable of maybe at some point in the future i will be and i don't doubt that it's uh, it's my fault not the fault of uh, meditation uh, <laughs> as i say me sam and other friends you know um uh, live by it and advise it, but um, I, I cannot do it. Mm. Interesting. And I, I do want to ask some questions about suffering, psychological suffering mm. and, and those kind of things. Because, By the way, also, yeah. you should, but also, by the way, I basically have the same instinct that uh, Christopher had, which is he described somewhere, I think maybe in, even in God is Not Great, he described that an ashram somewhere in the East that he saw on his travels, which said, leave your shoes and your mind at the door and every bit of him was revolted and uh, <laughs> i had the same revulsion 
uh, it's some, it's probably an arrogance of a kind, but, uh, and of course, and I, 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 Sam and others have said to me, that's not the point of meditating. Of course you don't actually, you know, you don't leave your mind at the door. You don't have to, you know, give up your intellect or anything else, but it feels awfully like that to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I do want to drill on that too in a second, particularly with very intellectual creative types like, like myself and like yourself. And I, and I would not put myself dispositionally in Sam's category at all as a very erratic kind of all over the place, hyper ambitious person, which, which I, I struggle with. And for that reason, I, I meditate more um, mm. similar to you in some way. Um, and you know, what you described about your mind is always racing. I mean, you know, I'm sure you're yourself aware of this as you've already expressed, but it, you know, it's basically like somebody saying they're very lazy, overweight, and they don't want to work out. So they shouldn't work out, you know, sure. that, that's, you know, and I'm sure you, you, you know, you know that. And, uh, yeah, but, um, but before we, um, before I ask more about that and kind of expand from there, um, you, you said you and Sam are trying to meditate <coughs> in Australia. Is yes. that a, is that a fun story you might want to share? <laughs> Well, it was with quite a lot of other people. We were doing a day-long event in Sydney, and um, okay. one of the things was that Sam was leading a sort of meditation session, and he was keen that I, I joined in, and I did, and I just uh, I just got nowhere with it. I mean, um, I don't know. I, I can't, you know, I, I, I just spent my whole time thinking, I wish I was reading a book, you know. Um, <laughs> it, it's an impossible instinct to it has something to do with maybe we're similar in this way in some way i i, I have a um a great fear of wasting time mm. and so whenever my whenever i feel like i'm wasting time i become increasingly irritable and i know what i want to be doing instead and so i'm afraid that for those hours or whatever it was maybe less than that uh, that was my state of mind and i am um, uh, and I thought, well, if I wanted to slow down, I could just have a scotch, you know. <laughs> That's funny. And 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 by, do you remember how long the session was, by the way, with Sam that he was leading? Don't know. It felt like forever. Uh, <laughs> probably no, probably an hour and a half or something like that. It yeah. was fascinating, and I and as I say, I greatly admire him. But he's he's got a very different um, personality to me, and he's yes, um, <clears throat> a different type of different, you know different differently made yes no and and I, and I would put myself more in your category too and you can maybe sense that from this hyper ambition from having succeeded and, and done a lot of big things at this age and, and and for that reason i'm more and more into it and the more the more i do mm. it, the more the more i realize how much my mind is an insane asylum and just how crazy it is in here and for that sure. reason I, I i pursue it more and more um, and, uh, you know, Sam, Sam is wonderful. And I've had a, a good conversation with him, um, in December, um, which was wonderful. We, we talked a lot about meditation and, you know, he has a very kind of yogic personality. Um, and he's very, you know, his, his voice is very soporific as well. And so his, his meditation mm. app for, for people listening, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and, uh, but okay. So, so you don't, um, meditate and you're not, and so you're an agnostic, um, and in terms of your, uh, do you have any religious practices or anything to, uh, orient yourself, um, in terms of like, like ground, like grounding yourself or any ancient texts you read for kind of wisdom in order to kind of brighten your life and to guide you through, um, this journey that you're on? Well, everything I read is, is brightening to some extent. 
Um, uh, the only contact I have with organized religion now is I, mean, I, I, will, I will occasionally sidle into a, a, a cathedral for even song, uh, which is useful for somebody with my beliefs because you don't really have to in, um, become engaged, involved in the service. It's something you're at, but you don't have to take part in. Uh, beautiful music, beautiful words, beautiful readings, but you don't have to, you know, uh, take communion or anything like that. So, I find um, I find even song uh, something I can do and like doing, uh, going to sometimes. Uh, I can't say I read the Bible often now. But then I have huge chunks of it in my head, so quite often I feel like I don't need to. Uh, I feel like that about a lot of ancient texts, uh, which I feel like I've 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 read and are in my head, and so I don't need to constantly be rereading because, to some extent, I'm always in dialogue with them. Uh, I think that's the case with a lot of texts. Um, and I suppose I read always to find new things out, new ways of looking at things. And I find that even the most banal things can make you think something. Uh, almost mm. nothing makes you not think at all. Uh, it's got to be a really bad author for that to be the case. <laughs> uh, Judith Butler, Ibram X. Kendi. Well, Kendi makes me think because he makes you think how awful he is. Well, yeah. But, and, and Judith Butler just makes me think what a shame you can't write. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, there's not much. But but yes, I, I think that everything you read goes into you. You know, that's like everything you watch, every building you see, um, everything goes into you somehow, um, which is why you should try to seek out the best of everything. Listen to the best music, listen to the best, read the best books, um, you know, go to the best places, see the best sites visit the greatest buildings um it's it's, it's why it's obvious that these are the places to start from mm. and um, um also i should say like i i don't feel the need to like teach you or inspire you or to tell you kind of from my limited framework of experience but i i will say i just remember too um that w with the whole meditation thing i i got into it through sam's teachings which are wonderful and his book waking up and his Meditation app is, is is wonderful and and adds a lot of uh, brightness, clarity, and calmness uh, in my day. But I, you know, I still to this day very much struggle with meditation because of my racing thoughts. And and for that reason, the um, uh, I've gotten into psychedelics is because when you're mm. in that experience, I don't know if, if this interests you, but 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 Sam was it on does. A, Sam was on a very Sam was on the exact same trajectory as me. He. Um, it was it was the psychedelics that got him interested in meditation, and, and he openly says, without it, he w he would have been you know <laughs> where, where you know where you're at in that your your mind is racing, you don't see what the point is, it seems super long, you you want to go read it. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. I know. Well, I, I, steady on. I didn't say I don't see what the point is. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. experientially, you don't see the like what what's really. No, I see the point. I just don't want to be a part of the point. Yes. Yeah, and, and I would say I was at the same place as you. And again, I don't feel like any kind of authority on this because I'm still like at step one. I'm still taking baby steps, learning from Sam. But but mm -hmm. yeah, for people listening and, and for, for your curiosity too, um, it was the psychedelic 
experience, which is very mystical. Yes. And Dr. I, think, Thor- I think Sam described that in Waking Up, didn't he? Yes. There was some experience for the psychedelic when he was relatively young, maybe in, in college, which he, I think he describes, if I remember, it's a long time since I read that book. But uh, I think he describes it as being a sort of, you know, opening of a part of the mind of a realization of a greater thing, yes. uh, which is obviously something that happens on, on psychedelics for some people. Um, yeah, no, I'm very interested in all of that, as everyone is these days. So what's it done for you? Yeah, <laughs> I feel like we're interviewing me now. Um, no, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm writing a lot about this right now, and it's, it's very important to me. But, yeah, it, um, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, I want to get into this as well um, with you about being, you know, an intellectual person who's kind of, you know, in my case and in your case, of course, you know, exercising this very powerful muscle, which is the intellect of, of uh, analyzing, understanding, judging reality. It's, it's a very... Uh, you know, interesting thing that we all need to to do, and we all do it, you know, automatically. But with the the psychedelic experience, as as Sam has had, and I've had in my own way, and w- which is kind of a common denominator across all of um, the psychedelics, is they um, really take you away from from judging and interpreting reality to just like directly experiencing reality, because the mm. the, the ego becomes radically diminished, and so you have mm. a much more clear lucid kind of connection with reality that's very unconditional and very non-judgmental and mm. this sounds all very abstract and strange for people who've never done this but but that that for me was a big opening was i was i was trying to meditate for a very long time and in my case um by the way like listening to sam and reading his work it was you know you know the, the claims he was making of this through meditation you can become free you can become liberated from psychological suffering um, mm. not, not that you won't experience pain or hardship, but that you can transcend your suffering. That was a claim that I, I still don't even know what that means to some extent. <laughs> and I'm still very early on in that process. But um, th- through the meditation, I was, it's, it's, it's still very difficult for me to see what exactly he's getting at to some extent. But it took the psychedelic experience, which, unlike meditation, guarantees almost um, <coughs> always that you're going to have a... Uh, a mystical experience. Um, well, uh, yes. I, I, let, let me um, let me respond to that with a couple of things. I mean, sure. One is that I have um, uh, I, I, I'm interested in these experiences. I, I think I know what Sam means by the transcending suffering, and I'd also add that there are several other ways to do that. Uh, absolutely. I mean, one, yeah. one thing. One thing. I mean, the obvious thing is that suffering is different in the rearview mirror so long as you've managed to overcome it, in that uh, at the time you think you've never been through anything so terrible, uh, you can't believe it's possible to live and be in such pain. But in the rearview mirror, you'll either forget about it or have, or have worked out a way through it that does transcend it. Um, people go through extraordinary things in their lives, unbelievable hardships, and uh, years later, they they have them in their proper context. Uh, so what I'm saying is that time does this job as well. So long as you haven't mm. given in and become a person of resentment in the meantime, which of course a lot of people do, but that transcending suffering is, 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 is something that's done by time. Uh, and uh, it doesn't only have to be psychedelics. I'd also add that um, mm-hmm. on the issue of, uh, well, there are two things. One is that in my observation, successful people or 
people who've accomplished some things tend to be um, very concerned about the wiring. So what I mean by that is that, for instance, I mean, I know people who are very successful who are um, have all sorts of problems and oddities and sometimes much, much more who will never do anything about them because they have a belief which is not completely incorrect that if you start to open up the bonnet and tinker, the car will stop working. Mm. That, uh, that isn't an irrational fear always. It sometimes is an irrational fear. There are some people who really need the bonnet opened up and, you know, stuff to come out and they need to change. But there are other people who, for instance, um, insecurities can be worked to their favor. Um, uh, um, irritabilities or irrationalities can work for them. Uh, take people who are highly driven or highly motivated. Quite often they're motivated by things that are, aren't that pleasant. Um, uh, a desire to beat other people, a desire to succeed over other people, a desire to get out of circumstances they're in, uh, or to supersede a certain expectation, either that they have of themselves or that somebody else has of them. These aren't all very attractive human traits, but they are often significant drivers for people. Uh, and so it is true sometimes that if you take away or somehow... Um, smudge over some of these things, you could change the operating mechanism of a hitherto successful, if painful vehicle. Um, and I've come across a lot of people in my life who, for instance, will not go through therapy or um, take various you know, substances because they fear that they will damage the, the engine that is painful, grinds, and much more, but takes them very far. Mm. And this, and this is something that people have to, you know, have to contend with individually. I mean, if you said to me, Douglas, mm. tomorrow, if you take this substance or if you go through this, you will be a less judgmental person. I'm not sure I would take it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's all very interesting. Um, and I, I think it's important to look at the costs and the benefits and when, what you said right there, you know, directly speak to me, um, with, uh, uh, w w w with what I've done. And I don't want to go too deep into that because I want to, you know, st stick to your life, but that, that was a big part of, um, the, the kind of break I took from writing, um, and from, from journalism, um, after my, um, couple of, uh, psychedelic experiences was, um, examining my motivation for doing these things. And I realized a, lo a lot of it was seeking a kind of external validation, a kind of validation that should, uh, in, in the healthiest setting, come from within. And so because of uh, these profound therapeutic experiences, I took a step back from writing um, and really looked at why I was doing this. Um, and and the, I guess the, the cost of that, to, to what you alluded to earlier, the cost of that was I lost two months of writing and there's, you know, a bit of income. And I, you know, I, I had a few plans for different articles to write that were going to be great, but I, I, I took a break from that. And I, I underwent a temporary, um, that was a temporary cost that I bore, but mm. I, I'm kind of thinking about the long-term game. So that, that's a question I have for you too, is like, for you, you started writing very young. 
and you said you published your first book at 20 and you're still writing now. And, and there are a number of things I want to kind of talk to you about that. And, and also uh, before I ask, um, you said you had an hour and a half, so it's, it's 12.45 here. So till, uh, till one best for you. Yeah. Let's do another half an hour. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Perfect. Um, so, you know, you've been writing for a long time and, and I, and I guess this is, I'm asking very personally as well, who's a young writer, who's, you know, very similar to, to your position at this age that I'm in right now. Mm. Like for me, I, I look ahead and I, I'm, I'm wondering for you, um, having written for so long, um, is there ever like, you know, I already asked you about religion and where you find sort of wisdom from, um, what one connect one question in connection to that also is are there anything are there certain things you do to ground yourself whether that's exercise travel or particularly i was looking for if there's any spiritual practices you engage in um and it seems like you 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 don't uh, other than visiting the cathedral but are there any other things potentially you do um that kind of counteract sometimes the um the the sometimes even like kind of the abuse of the intellectual muscles like when you're writing and reading so so much and then you feel disconnected from reality which i've kind of felt for for a while yeah. kind of getting too kind of getting too entangled within the culture wars and losing connection with reality very yeah. easy. well i mean there's a very banal one which is i exercise yeah. each day which is worth doing and work out and things and that i've always done that um that, that that's sort of a good opportunity to just pretty much turn your mind off to the extent that i can by the way so um, many so many people uh, but, are wondering where your bicep routine is it's it's incredible so many people are like i'm not i'm not telling them uh no the uh the <laughs> the second thing is that the um the, the best thing if you if you if you spend as much time as i do putting ideas out there uh you have to also ingest and uh I've mm. noticed I've noticed among my contemporaries and others, um, my colleagues and others, that an awful lot rests on that. Uh, you 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 can't say you're interested in ideas if you're not actually imbibing ideas. Um, you can't. I mean, uh, you can't only put out. You've got to be able to take in as well. And in order to do that, and I suppose it connects to what you're asking about spirituality, which is not a term I like, but has to, has to do. Um, I suppose, you know, I read backwards a lot. I mean, what I mean is I, I, I read great books of the past that I haven't read. And I find that to be an enormously uh, um, enriching and meaningful thing to do. Um, partly because it, it or there is always something uh which i'm going to end up needing or using or reflecting on uh i mean i one of the you know during the first lockdown i read a lot of russian literature and the you know, ones i novel i hadn't read before like uh, the brothers karamazov and um i had always put off reading it cause it's a rather intimidatingly long looking book um and of course, I finally had the time, as we all did. And uh, you know, there was a chain of thought, a train of thought that was struck by a passage late in that book, which I used in my new book, "The War on the West," in the chapter on gratitude and resentment. And I didn't know I was going to find something 
in the brothers Karamazov that was going to spark something in my next book. But I can, I can say with some degree of confidence that when I read a great classic I haven't read before, I, I know I'm going to get something out of it. Now that sound, that could sound in one way transactional. I don't mean it like that. It's just that you're bound to a great work of the past that you haven't read. You're bound to find something, some attitude, some way of looking at things that you haven't had before. So I, that is one of the things that I do, which is very, very important. And I have to carve out time in my day to do that. And I do. Mm. I always carve out time to read. Um, and uh, as I say, I mean, I do notice that when people get stretched thin in my line of work, it tends to be that they're putting an awful lot out there and they just aren't putting aside the time to take in. Mm. Uh, and so they lose perspective mm. on things. They, for instance, get caught in the social media whirlwind yes. uh, without being able to step back from it. Yep. Um, but, I mean, Jordan, for instance, also I know is, you know, very aware of the fact that, you know, he has to take time out to do things yeah. that are going to give him energy again. And and I'm very like that as well. Recently, Recently leaving Twitter, Although it seems like he's back, I don't know. I'm kind of I'm a little confused about that. He, he left Twitter. He left Twitter for about forty eight hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I know he had a social. He had an intermediary between him and Twitter, so he would email somebody, one of his people, to tweet something out. But as of the last couple of days, it seems like he's back on directly responding. To well, I think I think a couple of days after he said he was quitting Twitter, we were together for the wedding of his daughter. And, oh yes, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was very funny because he he, he took a photo of us immediately tweeted it out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the that's hilarious. Break has not been very long. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and, and you, you're, you know, your point is well taken, and I that's definitely some good advice that I should apply to is reading more historical texts and having a, a more diversity of, of readings to engage with. I think. Yeah. Uh, w- w- one kind of sub question too. Um, you know, I, I was talking a little bit earlier about my own journey from kind of atheism to kind of scratching the surface with Christianity and then through Sam's work, kind of bridging into the East, which is kind of where I am right now, by the way, um, is thoroughly examining um, Buddhism and Hinduism and looking at different views of God, different views of the universe Mm. and finding a lot of uh, kind of personal refuge in some of these Eastern ideas within Hinduism and Buddhism. I think there are just a wealth of incredible wisdom that I'm really closer understanding with um you know you you wrote this book defending the west and talking about the war on the west is there anything in the east that interests you or anything that you engage with within the indian tradition or within the chinese tradition anything like that uh yes i i, I mean certainly there are, there are things um i mean to, to, you know to my mind the uh the great cultures of the world all circle around the same questions and the same issues and um, uh, you know there is a view of religion that can become uh, what's known as syncretic uh, where you start to lose the boundaries of specific truth claims because you're getting claims from every direction I don't think although that's a heresy within religions I don't think it's a bad thing in itself I do think that taking a syncretic view from the beginning is a mistake. 
I believe that it's best to be well versed in one tradition and then reach out from there and find the others. I think that's a more successful mode of personal development than starting off being offered the world like a buffet and uh, just sort of picking slightly uh, fruitlessly at everything. Um, But that's a point really of education and of personal development. but of course, there are things in each tradition. I mean, I, one of the great blessings of my life is partly because of work, partly for my own reasons. I've always traveled very, very widely. And mm. um, also, what, uh, one thing before you go on, I'm just one thing that I thought of from what you said there about the, uh, the, the syncretic view and the universal view that those are things that I'm thinking a lot about. Um, and, you know, I, your point is well taken. I do agree with you. However, this is a point Sam makes and something that makes sense to me um, a lot, having grown up in a very kind of cosmopolitan environment with Eastern parents, with Sikhism and Hinduism, but having mostly Christian friends. When it comes to mystical experience, experiences of, of ego dissolution with connecting with something bigger than yourself, that seems to be a universal that is across. Well, of course. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course it is. And uh, it's a very important thing to realize that, and it should it should instill a certain amount of humility in people who make the the wildest, uh, most dogmatic truth claims. Um, I mean, you know, there's nothing in Rumi that I can disagree with. Mm. Um, the mystic, uh, for those who don't know. Yeah, uh, and I think anyone gains an enormous amount of insight and wisdom from reading Rumi. Um, I think that. Uh, uh, Tagore from the Indian tradition, I would have mm. said, would be a, another person who who wrote things, said things that were are immediately recognisable as 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 wise, if not true, to anyone from another tradition. Um, uh, so there are there are many things that I admire for all sorts of cultures around the world, um, and you know you. The, the, the real question is is the one on of are these all attempts to circle the same questions and the answer generally is is yes and then the next question is well which is doing the circling better right and it's at some point you have to make a, a, a cost benefit time analysis on this and work out whether leaping around and uh, um, skimming, that sounds pejorative, I don't really mean it like that, but let's say leaping around and getting a bit of everything is best, or whether it is best to drill down on one particular uh, tradition. Now, the normal thing is that people will Mm. drill down on the tradition that they are from, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I wouldn't expect, for instance, people who've grown up in some of the rich traditions of India to decide to just become, I don't know, interested only in Chinese culture or wisdom of the West or the far further East or anything. Um, uh, so people tend to approach these questions through the tradition that they have inherited. Um, of course, that's undergoing a very significant shift at the moment within the West for reasons I write about in the war in the West, which includes the fact that um, the tradition in the West actually wants to use itself the least would rather get things from anywhere rather than from its own source of wisdom. 
Uh, that's an unusual situation for civilization to be in, but I do think that's the Western predicament at the moment. Um, but yes, I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever met a person that I thought of as wise who, um, who was uninterested in other traditions and cultures. I, I don't really see how you could be. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think you and I could probably spend another two hours talking more and more about religion. It's just such a fascinating conversation. But the only other thing I'll say about that, about East and West that I'm exploring is that, um, and, and I assume you, you might not have spent as much time thinking about this particularly um, as someone like Sam might have. But while, you know, Sam and I and many other people are uh, just as much ardent uh, ardent defenders of the West as you are. But w when it comes to um, when it comes to the psychological nature of suffering, when it comes to, you know, you know, words that are commonly used like anxiety or depression or being disconnected from reality or you know, overthinking, obsessiveness, worshiping the material um from a direct experience um, angle from just your, your contact with psychological suffering, it seems to be the case. And, and I know Sam would much more eloquently and, uh, affer uh, and emphatically make this point, but what I'm realizing more and more is that when it comes to that, when it comes to the experience of suffering and how to unravel that and to understand the psychological mechanics of that, it seems like the East has, so much to offer that the West just seems kind of uninterested or it's not really part of the religious package. Not to say like that. what? Like what? Uh, when it comes to just, I mean, just the fundamentals of, of meditation. You know, that, that's kind of an easy place to start. When it comes to your uh, negative thinking, when it comes to suffering, like I'm suffering right now and I'm really anxious, I'm really worried about something in the future or I'm regretful about the past. Um, not, not to say that, you know, Christianity wouldn't deal with that in a beautiful way. And, and, you know, I go to church every Sunday and there are very profound ways of looking at that from a more conceptual layer of, um, you know, your, your relationship to God and your relationship to others. Um, and, uh, the, the whole kind of religious framework around that there, there's so much that, that even I don't understand yet, but when it comes I to, mean, yes, I would have said, what, I, I think you're going down a false dichotomy here. When, I mean, I mean, for instance, uh, the uh, regards to suffering and transcending of suffering, I can't see how there's much anywhere that is uh, it has thought any tradition that has thought about this more than the Christian tradition. Uh, when it comes to yeah. the issues of, mm -hmm. for instance, how you describe issues like anxiety and, and much more, which are very modern terms uh, for old problems but i mean um, the christian tradition has thought very deeply about this expresses itself very deeply about it i mean there's in uh, the Anglican tradition there's what's known as the comfortable words said before the communion with the uh, mm. excerpts of the bible like um, you know, come come unto me all ye that are heavy laden and i will refresh you um these these mm. the um all of the, I mean, the, the, much of the Psalms, much of the teaching of Jesus is, is about um, uh, laying your your sufferings down and, 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 and following Jesus. Now, that's, as I say, something which is, mm. is, is not, not something I personally uh, can do. 
but it's right. very obvious that the that the Christian tradition has thought very deeply about suffering. Suffering is absolutely no. at the heart yeah. of it. Absolutely, I'm not going to disagree with any of that. What, what, what I'm talking about, and I, I, don't, I don't want to fixate on this too much, but it's specifically the the experience of I'm really angry right now. My heart is beating really fast because something that's going to happen tomorrow. I'm I'm really really worried about it. Yes, you, you'll you'll find so much that you'll 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 find so much wisdom within the Bible um, in terms of dealing with that in a certain way. But when it comes to that, when it comes to just that moment of suffering when your heart is beating really fast and you're really anxious um you know for, from an eastern perspective it would be slow down take 10 deep breaths and just open up sure. your experience let go but, but don't forget also that i mean uh, this is one of my irritations with this particular line of thought is that don't mm -hmm. forget that, that your body is telling you some important information in that moment a absolutely Right, and and now now it may be something which it's unwise to take a breath and not. Now there, I I make a, a caveat to that. There may be times when this is information your body and your mind are telling you, which are active actually um, uh, um, messages to you that are becoming destructive. For instance, if you are if you are anxious at such a high pitch so often it is mm. possible that this is your body and your mind doing something to you, which you need to stop it from doing. However, it's mm -hmm. also possible. And I, I mean, in my experience, it's the case that very often this is important information, which you don't want to ignore. You don't want to transcend it. You need to experience it and get through it. Uh, now, yes. maybe this is, maybe, maybe this is part of my stoicism. Um, and my belief that actually an awful lot in our societies would be improved if people read the Stoics. Uh, but mm, yep. the point is, is that sometimes the message is, is not find a way to push this away or absorb it, but you're just going to have to go through it. Good yep. luck. We all do. And uh, yep. I think that is... I think working out the difference, and by the way, I mean, in psychological terms, in therapy terms and much more, this is a very important distinction to be able to make, which is the distinction, as I say, between things that your body and your mind are telling you, which are useful information you need to be acting on. And the, the moments, and it happens to everyone in their lives at some point, sometimes for very often, where your body and your mind are giving you information which are actually not helpful. For instance, your uh, flight instinct is just overly um, sensitive, uh, overly active, and that you don't need to be feeling this terror on this scale for this amount of time and and more. That's, that's something you need to do something about if that occurs to you. But it would be a great mistake for people to think that every time your body tells you flee, it's, um, yes. it's information you need to transcend. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And, 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 you know, just to be clear on the meditation, the, the, the Eastern view of that, you know, from the experience of yoga or meditation, the, the idea is not in any way to kind of superficially transcend it or to, or to push it away. It's rather to, to experience it fully with, with full 100% clarity rather than mm -hmm. running away. It's, pre it's precisely what you, what you said. And because I mean, the, for instance, let me give you an example. Everybody, particularly when they're young, experiences um, uh, worries about the future. Yeah. I mean, actually, everyone does all the time. It never goes away. 
uh, everybody experiences uh, worry about money, everybody, um, with almost no exceptions, even the super rich. Uh, so this is, and, and these are reasonable worries, which you have to keep in a reasonable light. Um, and you, you have to find your own attitude towards uh, what if this is very sensible, motivating uh, uh, messaging, which is actually going to help me make good and prudent decisions? And what of it is, you know, uh, holding me back? Mm. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, I, and I think what, what you were saying earlier about experiencing pain, you know, and just embracing the hardship, I, I think that that's crucial for many people. And but you mentioned... I don't see how you can't not do it. I mean, you can't avoid it. You can't exactly. avoid it. And it's, it's much better that people realize that. Yes. Yeah. And and, and I think that's where the, the, the emphasis on direct experience and embracing of, of suffering from uh from just the, the perspective of consciousness within the East is very powerful in my experience. And, you know, Sam puts this in much more uh, eloquent terms, but it's, you know, you're the, 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 you know, often conceptually I can understand. Yeah. I have to experience pain. Yeah. There are worries. There are things I have to take care of, but there's still kind of an unconscious automatic suffering. It's like, okay, yeah, sure. You've convinced me. I have to go through this hardship, but there's still a suffering. There's still a resistance an internal resistance towards that thing of, oh, fuck, I have to do it. I have to do it. This sucks. My life sucks. Oh, oh. There's mm. that push, right? And that's, I think, where the, the, the experiential side that the East so beautifully masters within Buddhist and Hindu practices, that's where I think that's very powerful, is overcoming that internal kind of automatic response that you have that, to some extent, you just can't get rid of on a conceptual layer. It's like somebody who's hyper-anxious, you, you know, you can you can logically tell them this is what you have to do and it'll make sense to them. But they're in that same situation and the, the logical understanding is is going to massively benefit them. And having a spiritual framework, um, uh, whether it's a Christian one or a, or, or a Hindu one, is, is huge in alleviating a lot of suffering. But the, the, the point that I was making and the point that, that Sam makes wonderfully is that that automatic just kind of... Uh, neurologically wired response we have to psychological suffering, unwinding that and rewiring that response is kind of at the center of the Eastern experience. That's very powerful for many people. That's the appeal. And, and the only other thing I'll also say is I'm, I'm kind of contrasting the, the, the Eastern traditions of, of Buddhism and Hinduism with um, Protestant Christianity, the popular kind of view of Christianity as I explore more and more within the Christian tradition, I realize just how incredibly diverse it is. And I'm going to have my friend um, who's a journalist at uh, the post millennial come on the podcast next week and, and to talk about his um, retreat at a Orthodox Christian monastery. And that experience, mm. that particular practices he's being taught in some broad way, much more aligns with kind of the lifestyle that you might associate with Buddhism or monastic Hinduism rather than Protestant Christianity. Now, mm. of course, they're worlds apart and, you know, on some level, you know, Christianity is Christianity, but um, there's a lot to say for um, the, the diversity within Christianity. And, and, you know, Alan Watts makes a wonderful point that mm. when you get into the East, you see much more 
of kind of psychotherapy than you do of religion in, in certain very specific contexts. And that's a, the, that's a very beautiful thing. And the kind of deprioritization of mysticism and mystical experience within Protestant Christianity is a big problem that uh, uh, your friend, mm. our, our mutual friend, Jordan Peterson, and I discussed at uh, extensive length on his podcast uh, this year. Mm. Um, uh, I don't know if there's anything more you want to say on that, but but I did want to ask you um, also um, in terms of having started so young um, as a writer, and this is something that I'm thinking a lot about too, and, and you've already answered this a bit, but you know, you've, you've been in the you've you've been in the game for so long, and I'm only kind of starting out. You know, do you ever kind of get tired of of kind of using the intellectual muscle so much, like getting so involved within writing and reading and politics? Like, do you ever just kind of get sick of it and kind of just want some you know retreat into, into the mountains or some travel experience? Just you know, get away from it. Maybe even a spiritual desire. Is there like what what are things that you do to counteract the kind of tiredness um, or the kind of mundanity that often becomes part of anything that you do for a very long time. And, and for you and I, it's the, the common denominator is politics, writing and media. I never find it mundane. Uh, I, I'm almost never bored. Um, really? I'm, yes, I'm certainly never bored by work. Um, ne- never bored never. by what I do. Never. No. I mean, if I am, I get out. Um, right. Uh, I'm um, very um, engaged. I sometimes, I mean, inevitably, sometimes the people around you know, you know you better than you know yourself. But uh, some time ago, about a year ago, I said to a friend, you know, oh, I wish I could stop for, you know, a while. And she said, no, you don't, Douglas. You'd be bored within a day. And she was completely right. I mean, she knew me, knew me better than I knew myself. And it was completely true. Uh, I'm very bad at holidays, very bad at relaxing. Really? Everybody knows me. Knows this. Yes, I mean, I can. I just don't want to do it for very long. Um, Interesting. I'm, I, 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 at the beginning of my career, I didn't have a holiday for, I think, seven years. And my family persuaded me to come on holiday with them. But that was because I was starting oh, wow. off and I was, having to, and I was having to work very hard. And as everybody does when they're starting off, you fear what will happen if you say no ever. Um, you fear that if you turn something down, they won't call again. Um, and so I just couldn't stop. And I was making the foundations of my career. So I, I, I just, that was how it was. Um, I'm a bit better at that now. But, um, and there were, there were places I go to, there were certain happy places in my head, uh, certain cities, um, places I know well which I've returned to many times, which I like the idea of spending more time in. But um, I don't wish to stop. Um, uh, put it another way, I, I mean, I never want mm. to retire. Um, if if somebody said to me, oh, you know, you could do this, don't you? you could get an early retirement package and you could, it means you could stop when you're 65 or whatever. I would think, oh my God, that's awful. Um, mm. So, uh, so that's a sign that you're doing what you want to be doing, right? Uh, what you feel you need to be doing. I certainly there will be times in the future when I'll want to slow down. I mean, I work very hard, mm. and doubtless, you know, I can do that still because I'm in my early forties, and I'll probably be able to work at this pace for another ten years or so. 
Um, and then I'll probably want inevitably to slow down and that's fine. But I also have in my head the books I know I need to write. And some of them I know yeah. I will write some decades from now. There are some which I know I can't write now, uh, but which I know I need to write in the future. And so for me, uh, the most important thing in a way is making sure that I am given the time right, uh, to do everything yeah. that I feel that like I need to do. Yeah. And, and, you know, the reason why I ask you that question is, is because I, I'm thinking a lot about this and, and I see many people in my life and many other uh, examples of people in high places who are just just so much overworking in one area, whether that's writing or that's acting or filmmaking or whatever it is. And that sort of creates like it sort of becomes a bit of a, a work addiction where they're unable to yes. enjoy other things in life. And, oh, yeah. But that's, and, I mean, I, I very much enjoy other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I love dinner with friends. Uh, I love drinking. I love going out. Um, I love socializing. I love gossip. Love gossip. <laughs> love gossip. Um, That's awesome. And like, uh, and and love seeing the people I love. Um, and uh, you know, that's. I but I don't. Um, I don't think there's anything. I, I think there are people who have unhealthy work-life balances. Obviously. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as, and as you will find starting out, there's quite often times when, when people will say to you, you might find particularly your mother or others, they say, oh, why don't you, why don't you just ease off a bit? And the answer is because I'm, I'm making my career um, because mm. I can't, because this is what you need to do. And of, but of course, people who care for you and people who are older than you will look at you and say, oh, you know, couldn't you take it a bit easier? And the answer is no, you can because of where you are in life. But where I am in life, mm. I can't. And that's just fine. Mm. Yeah, you, you, you sound like the, the ideal South Asian son that my parents wish they had. <laughs> I'm, and, and, and ironically, maybe it's the, 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 the Westerner who went to the East and kind of pulled those insights, who's kind of radicalized me, Sam Harris, who, you know, <laughs> over the past year, as I already described to you, I was just so consistently writing articles and so engaged within the culture wars so constantly. And I realized I, I needed a break and I, and I was having too much of it. I was too immersed into that. Well, yes, but I mean, that's, that's, you can, there are other ways to do that. I mean, I never write only about the culture wars, you know, um, well, uh, you know, I write about for me, culture for me, well. for me, for me, it was writing like just period. It was just, I was writing too much, ah. I was reading too much. Um, but, but it seems like, I guess, you know, you know, we, we may just have a big personality difference, but for you in how much work you do and just how much output you have, like for you, you know, in, in your definition, like you don't have any problem with that. And you would say you are living, you know, a, a fully, you know, joyful, well-examined kind of optimal life with working so much. And, and I ask that because most people that I know who have a similar work ethic as you, they feel kind of very depressed and lifeless. They're, they're too intellectual and they're, you know, they seem too obsessively involved with their work. At if, the if I was if if I was depressed or lifeless, I wouldn't work. Uh, I don't see how that's possible. Um, I mean, you 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 can't be very productive and dislike the thing you're doing, or be bored by it or anything like that. A move, change, shift, move. Uh, I wrote a book a few years ago, "The Strange Death of Europe," which is a very gloomy book. 
to read. It's a very popular book, fortunately, but it was a very uh, gloomy book to read for all sorts of reasons. And, and uh, as I often have said to people who've reported that back to me, I've always said to them, well, you should have seen what it was like to write it. Um, but uh, after doing that, and I knew the place I was in when I finished that, I knew I needed to do something else, and I did. And so if I'd have just decided I will stay stuck in the gloom that I'm in from writing this book, um, that wouldn't have been good at all. Uh, but I'm self-aware enough to know that I needed to uh, rev myself up and throw myself into something different, and I did. And um, mm. and, and, and as a writer, you can, again, this might be useful advice for other people as well, one of the things you can do is to, is to make sure you change the pace quite often. And mm. what I mean by that is, you know, uh, sure, you know, write your articles, write your books and so on. And also, you know, sometimes take time to write a long review of a book that you want to write about or mm. uh, uh, something else, whatever it is you particularly like, you know, do that and, 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 and write about that. Um, don't get stuck. I mean, never get stuck. I can tell you the amount of times in my career when I could have got stuck. Um, and I don't think I've ever allowed myself to be actually. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think also too, with me, I, I've, I've struggled with a lot of mental health issues, which, which seems like you haven't. And so for me, like the big difference, I guess, between you know you and I, even though we're at totally different places, is that for me, writing so much was kind of feeding the same underlying mental health issues. And, I, mm. and those, when gone unaddressed, is going to make work into a, 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 a toxic addiction and is going to further obscure and make you run away from your underlying mental and spiritual issues that you have. And so, and so I think- Well, that's quite possible. I mean, I, I don't know what the specifics are with you, but I think that it's just, it's very important for people to, to um, do several things. I mean, one is to have what we call a healthy balance towards things. Um, but another is to not spend too much time looking inward. Uh, I, this is maybe odd, odd advice for a writer to give, but uh, of course you have to understand yourself, but the world is much more interesting. And, and I do think that whenever somebody says to me, you know, I, I've really been working to understand myself, I think, well, what about the, what, what about the world? No. Um, it's true that an element of self-knowledge, a degree of self-knowledge is a very important thing for your mental well-being and for your productivity, but it's not endlessly so, you know. Mm. Yeah. Um, I have two short questions. Um, do you have to go, Douglas? I, wanna I have to go very shortly, but I will take your two short questions and promise you I'll give you two short answers. Okay, <laughs> sure. Let's, let's do that. Maybe I'll just throw both of them at you and then you can maybe try and answer them. Although the second one is, is kind of a different topic. But the, the, the first question also for me, I'll quickly say, as a very creative person who started off into this, this field of writing and journalism, for me, I, I, I realize that I can't do this forever. And, and for me, there's going to be more of an evolutionary process, you know, much different to you. So, so for me, I want to make my own TV show, go into filmmaking, maybe even go to music. Like I'm just a very kind of all over the place, much more artistic kind of person. And I love comedy and acting and I want to explore those areas. Is that something that uh, it, it seems like that's not something that's on your mind. You seem fully content with writing and that's a craft you want to continue to well, well i mean I, I that's the thing i do find most pleasure in. it's my my art uh but um i mean obviously i do a lot of television and, and many other things uh mm. and 
I, I enjoy that. I mean, I sort of measure out my life in books. So um, that's, that's sort of my, my self measure of things. Um, I, I would always, you know, say to people, try, try out whatever you think you need to try out, but don't be all over the place. Like, don't do a little bit. Right. There are people, there are people I've seen who think they can do everything and they end up doing nothing. Yes. Uh, you yep. know, do apply yourself to something and work hard at it and see if it works. And the other stuff starts to come along and then you can expand outwards. But I mean, whenever somebody says to me, for instance, you know, I've got four books I, I need to write and I'm writing at the moment. I always know they're not going to write any of them. <laughs> uh, and that's always the case. Always the case. Whenever anyone who has not written a book tells you of their multiple books that they're planning to write and or are writing at that moment, you know they're not going to publish one book. And sure enough, they don't. Uh, and so I would certainly counsel, like, definitely go into whatever it is you want to do. If you want to be a stand-up comic, do a stand-up comic. But all of these things require mm. significant attention to the craft and to the expense of other things. You know, if I did slightly more television than I currently do, it would affect my writing uh, productivity and I'd have mm. to weigh that up. And uh, if I was also trying to become better at the piano, which I'm, you know, good enough for my own uh, purposes, but probably not good enough to make a career out of. Well, I know it's certainly not good You're enough to make a career out of. But if I, if I, uh, but if if I, my point is, is that if 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 I did that uh, as well, I thought I was going to, I'd end up not doing anything. And right. so I think people have to be very careful of that, and I'd certainly urge that on you. Mm, yeah, no, that, that's that's well taken. Um, uh, but, uh, I guess the, the second question also, um, you know, we, we talked a bit before, um, in the podcast, I mentioned earlier about me being interested in talking about personal things. And you said, you know, we, we can talk about anything you want, but, but of course anything doesn't mean anything. So if, if you don't want to answer this, you don't have to, sure. but I've, I've never heard about, you know, Douglas Murray's like re uh, relationship life or kids or anything like that. Is that, um, I'm, um, that's, yep. that's a, it's a, it's a deliberate, uh, belief of mine that, um, okay. Uh, I don't go into it. And uh, as I say, I mean, part of it is it's nobody else's business. Uh, part of it is I don't want to be that sort of person. I just, and I have seen people who I know who put everything out there and it always comes back. Uh, right. I think it's incredibly important for anyone who's in any way a public figure to have a private life. And for it to be clear, that's their private life. Um, I also think, you know, I don't want to pretend that I can give people advice on how to run their lives. Yep. Um, I don't want to make the mistake of oversharing. Um, uh, and as I say, I mean, I'm, I'm canny enough and old enough to know that you have to be careful with oversharing in public, uh, um, that, that you have to have parts of yourself that are yours and which are not other people's business. And I'm a horror, I have been horrified often through my life of what friends, contemporaries and others have been willing to put out there. And I watch them do it. And I sometimes say to them, why would you mm. do that? Why would you do that? It'll be coming right back at you. And very often it does. So, you know, there are people who can bear living 100% in the spotlight and indeed like it and embrace it. And increasingly we do have writers who are effectively living the lives of influencers as well. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in that. Um, you have to keep part of yourself back. 
in order to do lots of things, but one of them is just to live. And um, mm. as I say, I I heartily recommend to anyone young who's listening, I heartily recommend keep stuff back that's for yourself. Mm. Yeah, I, I fully respect and understand that. And that's something I'll, I'll think about too moving forward as, as a younger person growing up in social media where, where you kind sure. of are sort of incentivized to post about everything and share a lot of things. Yeah. I, I of appreciate your, your wisdom. But uh, listen, cool. yeah, listen, Douglas, this was a very edifying conversation. I appreciate your time. Well, it was uh, a great pleasure. I like appreciate I, you. Yeah, like I told you earlier, um, I started reading your work when I was in high school and somehow got into the New York Post and somehow I've been on many of the same shows of, uh, as you've been on. And so I, I, I give some credit to you for that success. And, and I and appreciate oh, wow. what you've taught me. I'm very pleased to hear that. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, it's very good to speak finally. Yeah, yeah. And, and this conversation was great. And I, you know, because you had also started very young and published your first book at 20, I, I saw some parallels in what I'm doing. And so I wanted to kind of pick your brain and see kind of how, um, you know, keeping up that pace 20 years later, what, what that's like. And because I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking a lot about the long, long game. And, I, and I'm sure my I'm way glad is, to hear it. My path is going to be very different from yours in that it's going to expand into different areas where if you've, you're, you're fully content within the, the writing area, which is, which is great. But uh, it's, it's, it's good to hear from your perspective and how you've evolved um, religiously as a person looking at the world and looking at um, all of its complexity. So um, I, I've learned a lot and I'll definitely try to think and apply certain things you've said uh, to my life. So thank you. It's been a great pleasure. All right. Have a good day. All right. So that was Douglas Murray. That was a great conversation. Thank you, everybody, for uh, tuning in. That was awesome. All right. We'll see you next time.